This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we welcome musical superstars Debbie Harry and Chris Stein of Blondie, who came to NYPL's Library for the Performing Arts in 2013 for a talk with Rolling Stone senior critic Will Hermes. In this rousing conversation, Harry and Stein discuss punk, photography, and the New York City music scene in the 1970s. Thank you. It's great to see this room packed with some familiar faces. And uh, I'm incredibly flattered to be here for a number of reasons. Um, One, probably first and foremost, is because this book would, if, if it was finished at all, would not be anywhere near as good, if I can assume it's fairly good, um, if it was not for this library. I did a lot of research here, um, both from their bound periodicals collection, where I found material that exists nowhere else in the country, um, also from their film and video collection, where I found stuff that also would have been completely lost to time if it was not for the work that the people do here. Um, so I am very thankful to the, to the library and their staff for preserving stuff that has not been digitized. It's kind of hard to remember that there exists material that has not been digitized. But uh, the program that this evening is a part of has uh, been put together by Betsy and her staff. And it, uh, it really covers the spirit of what I was trying to get at in this book, which is New York is at any given point in history um, home to multiple music scenes, multiple art scenes that are all happening simultaneously. Sometimes they intersect and sometimes they don't. And a lot of the histories of what happened during this period in the 70s that I write about tended to atomize the musical scenes into the incredible um, creative output that was the punk scene. Then there was the disco scene, which was its own world of creativity. There's the hip-hop scene, which was just bubbling up at the time. Um, Less chronicled was the salsa scene, which was the center of the Spanish-language music world, was in New York City. During those era, during that era, um, the downtown composers, the the loft jazz scene, which had also been sort of overlooked by jazz historians, but I think now, especially among young players, is beginning to get its due. Um, all of these scenes were happening simultaneously, and uh, and were. Um, were really fertile, and I'm excited to be here with Debbie Harry and Chris Stein because I think in the work that they did, maybe more than any band that came out of the uh, the punk scene, um, really reached out to, connected with, absorbed, um, communicated with other 
music scenes in the city at the time. So we'll talk about that later. But just to sort of set the scene of what we're going to talk about, I'm going to bring them out in just a second. I, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from the book, which runs from 1973 to 1977, strictly chronological. So this is January 1st, 1973, and a scene from the Mercer Arts Center, which Debbie and Chris can speak to and lays out a little bit of the territory that uh, we'll be talking about. An hour after midnight on January 1st, 1973, Ernie Brooks was barreling down I-95 towards the city in his mother's Volvo. His band, The Modern Lovers, had been booked for a New Year's Eve show at the Mercer Arts Center. The New York Dolls were headlining. But his van died outside of New Haven. So he hitched to his parents' house in New Canaan, got the family car, drove back to the van, jammed guitars and microphones into the Volvo, and drove like hell. The Mercer was packed. There were teenage girls in mini skirts and garish makeup. There were guys in mini skirts and garish makeup. <laughs> a woman wore a dress that had been cut into pieces and reassembled with safety pins. The Modern Lovers went on around 3.30 a.m., plugging into the doll's amplifiers. As a rule, they wore T-shirts and jeans, but for this gig, their leader, Jonathan Richmond, had bought a white dress shirt. During hospital, a love song as raw as a skinned knee, he ripped the shirt off. A girl standing beside the stage bent to pick up a stray button as a souvenir. The dolls went on just before dawn. The lead singer, David Johansson, wore a white blouse, tight white pants, and white platform heels. He swigged from a bottle of Miller, flipped back his hair, and introduced a song called Trash. The band was sloppy. The bassist, who was wearing a yellow plastic tutu, could barely play. But they were thrilling. And the song sounded amazing, like some 50s rock and roll gem retooled for a more jaded age. There were lots of artists in the crowd that night, actors, dancers, musicians. Truman Capote was there. So was Richard Myers, a poet who was beginning to play bass and write songs. He was very impressed. Richard Myers later changed his name to Richard Hell and just wrote a fantastic memoir, which came out only a week or two ago. Um, which is a chronicle of, uh, of this era and after. Um, but to uh, devote the rest of the time to two people who were there, lived it, and built it, I want to introduce um, from New York City, <laughs> Deborah Harry and Chris Stein. Are you guys ready? Come on out and join us.
suspects here? I can't tell. They'll make themselves known soon enough. So, you know, my, my favorite Jonathan Richmond story was he did a show at Town Hall right at the height of the punk insurgency. I don't know what you would call it. You know, right, right when it's really kicking off. And he came out, and rather than do the Modern Lovers material, he came out with a small acoustic band and played very low volume. And I just remember everybody in the audience yelling, louder, louder. It was like, I guess he had to be there. It was a very punk rock thing for him to do. <laughs> he, was, he was kind of came out, and everybody was, you know, remembering the Modern Lovers stuff, and he kind of did the antithesis of that. So it was ironic, to say the least. Yeah, it's... Debbie? I was particularly impressed with the miniature drum kit, and you know, I mean, the, the gear was, yeah, it was just all... sized down. Everything was. Did it have like a snare was... and nothing else, or? No, no, yeah, the whole kit, but it was like a, I guess a child size or something. <laughs> it was great. It was great, and they had a, I mean, they had a perfect balance at everything. It was just small. Man was a conceptualist. Yeah. But the, th the thing about the New York City punk scene, I, I think, is that it, with a few exceptions of people who were born and raised in Manhattan, it was really built by out-of-towners, um, or at least out-of-borough folks. Um, and I, so I wanted to ask both you guys, um, Debbie as a, a New Jersey um, resident initially, and Chris as a as a representative of the great borough of Brooklyn. Um, what brought you to New York, to Manhattan specifically, in the first place? The, was it cultural scenes or musical things? What were, your, what were your New York dreams when you dragged in here? Um, well, folk music for me, because it goes all the way back to the Washington Square period, you know, so. I was, uh, I just was always, always coming in ever since I was a kid. I wound up going to high school after I got thrown out of uh, high school in Brooklyn, Midwood High School in Brooklyn. What were you thrown out for? For having long hair. And 60, 65 in my junior year there. Um, and then my mom found this really great, cheap private school on 56th Street, which was over a motorcycle store. It was right over the Bull Taco motorcycle store. And it was, it was a ballet studio on the weekends. It was right across the street from Carnegie Hall. And I, Johnny Thunders went there later, and Patty Duke went there. And it was called Quintano School for Young Professionals. And there were probably a couple of kids there who were, were professional kids and were in the in-show business, but mostly it was miscreants like myself. And it was just academic. It was a very small environment, and it, it was awesome. So I, was, I used to come from Brooklyn on the subway all the way up to 56th Street every day for high school, and that, it was great. And, I, and even before that, I was just coming in and hanging around the West Village, because the West Village used to be the equivalent of the East Village scene, the, you know, with the Love and Spoonful and the Night Owl and all the Bizarre and Jimi Hendrix and Richie Havens and all that junk. That was all going on long before the East Village was a thriving musical center. Yes, and that's why I wanted to come to New York. I did, I, I, I wanted to be a beatnik. Uh, forever. I just wanted to be a beatnik. And I was so disappointed that uh, they were gone by the time that I got here. <laughs> I mean, there were remnants, of course, um, that uh, 
I mean, where else would a person go besides New York City? And whenever you get here, there's always some amazing scene that you just missed by like minutes. <laughs> but uh, but you you arrived here, Debbie, as um, uh, you were you were doing various jobs, but you were involved with a with kind of a folk rock band initially. Yes, I guess that's what Chris and I had sort of had a folk folk uh, thing. Okay. You know, I mean, the, the revolves are folk music. Let's face it. <laughs> yes. Are. It's but, all folk music. But um, the wind in the willows? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they were, they, I mean, you guys made a record. We did. We actually major label. Made, we made two. But the uh, second one, didn't. they didn't release it. <laughs> ah. Uh, the hidden tapes. How did, how did that uh, group? <laughs> I know, somebody who's running a reissue label right now. Should take note, but did um, was this a band that came together in New York and New Jersey, or it was uh, my best friend from high school's husband. Uh, they were Freedom Riders, and uh, they came back from Mississippi, and um, you know I guess it was the the end of the '60s, and um, a folk, you know, they had to be folk musicians, and so you know I, I was just hanging around. I, I really didn't have a, a clue about much. Were they, were they like um, sincere? Were they trying to cash in on the, the folk trend of having the sitar in the background, or were they sincere about their approach? Or both? Oh, I don't remember a sitar in the background. Yeah, there's a tambora. You oh, the tambora, yeah. You play some of that stuff in there. Well, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I guess it was the, the, you know, the flavor of the of the day. Yeah, sitars were kind of mandatory for a yeah. little while there yeah. on uh, no, it was folk a, rock records. You know, it was, a, I say it was Baroque. Yeah. <laughs> and you were, you were also, you were, you had a few day jobs famously at, uh, one of them at, at Max's Kansas City. Yeah, that was great. As Max's a waitress. Max's was great. I got to hang out, meet a lot of, uh, I mean, Max's at that, in that reincarnation or that, you know, era, was a mecca for all different kinds of uh, people from all over the world. And a lot of, you know, a lot of, I mean, it was totally international uh, art, film, and music scene. And it was fascinating, fascinating. Right, Does, was music your thing? Did you know that that was the direction you wanted to go in when you were Yeah, here? pretty much, pretty much, yeah. I sort of uh, went through the, sort of short, short phase of thinking that I wanted to be a painter. <laughs> but uh, then, um, then I, I just sort of, music was so much, you know, such a part of me and I don't know. I had always been so in love with music. And you both had some interesting bands going before Blondie came together. I know Chris, you had... I, I played with the guys who went on to become the Left Bank when they were in their... They were called the Morticians. And we did... I, I did one gig with them in a barbershop. And the Left, the left Bank went on to the have a, bank, that big Soon thereafter, somebody gave... Oh the name my, of which is One of the guys. Right one of them. I can't remember the names now. I should know, but I don't. Um, they funded them, and they hired a string section and did... Walk away, walk away, Renee. Renee. Walk away, Renee, and all that, all that stuff. Those guys went on to heights, greater heights. That the they have reformed with George, who was in the Morticians, who was the drummer. I see it. They actually do some little fringe gigs around. I think. 
Huh. Really? Yeah, they, oh. like three of them left or two of them left. And was this the band that um, opened for, you opened for <laughs> no, the Velvet opened Underground? For the, yeah, I opened up for the Velvet Underground. You've had the Zelig-like existence, Chris. Yeah, it's I know, amazing. I know. I am well aware of that. I was in... I was on Hate Street in 1967, <laughs> all that stuff. I, I remember the day my friends came running into our communal house and going, George Harrison, George Harrison just showed up on Hate Street. And there was a poster floating around for years of Harrison arriving in a limousine on Hate Street. So I missed his actual appearance, but I was around the vicinity. I, I, got, to L, I got to L.A. the weekend of Monterey Pop, but I was so horny to go to San Francisco that I didn't go to the festival, I always regretted it, actually. But you did make it to Woodstock. I mean, I got to Woodstock. We were both at Woodstock, yeah. You were both at Woodstock. Yeah. What'd you think? Oh, yeah, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was great. So, in 1967, I had a friend... I had a friend who was working for Andy Warhol, and he, he would go to Andy's house, and he, he was... He was he must have been, like, 14 or something, my friend Joey. And he had, he had waist-length blonde hair, which for 1967 was even pushing the limits, you know. And he would wake up Andy in the morning, and he was really cute, and he was the gopher for the factory. So one day he showed up at my house in Brooklyn, with, we were just all hanging out, and he said, um, they need a band to open up for the Velvets. And we all knew who the Velvets were, because we had been listening to the record, you know, it was a great the first, this is yeah, the first, the first banana record was amazing, you know. And it, you know, it came out in the midst of all this flower power stuff, and it was this dark, you know, somber thing that was very counter to what was going on at the time. So we got on the subway with our guitars and junk, and we went up to this place, the gymnasium, which is up here on the west side somewhere. And uh, just that was it. There was nobody there. Andy was there in the shadows. It was, you know, five people. It was, it was a gymnasium. It was a big gym in, like, some building or high school or something. And they, they let us use their amps. And Maureen Tucker let us put her bass drum upright because she used to play the bass drum like that, you know. And it was, I, it was great. It's vivid memory. Wow. And did a... Uh... Is it something that stuck with you musically? And, uh... I remember how great they were and how they made use of the acoustics of the room because it was this big echoey room and it really threw us off. We didn't know we weren't we weren't up for that at that time. You know, I hadn't been doing much of this and they they were really into the echo and the reverb of the room and they you know they were on top of it. It was great. Jumping forward a, a little bit of time to. Um, the Mercer Art Center, which I had just read that segment from, um, there was a glam scene there that sort of predated punk and, you know, kind of, it seemed to me anyway, embody a lot of the, the sort of sonic ethics that punk took in a slightly different direction. But did, were either of you guys involved in yeah, you know, sure. that scene as musicians or as players? Yeah, I was, yeah, well, you were hanging out with the dolls and all those yeah, guys. I was just a a fan, you know, a groupie. And you're a Dolls fan? A groupie, yeah. Fan, yeah. But I she love was, them, she was, love them. She was in the inner circle of the Dolls, I suppose. But, and I was, I had, I was at the School of Visual Arts then, which I had, um, anyway, I was, I was there. And uh, I used to see flyers in the lobby for the Dolls, and I always thought it was a drag act, so I never really pursued it. And then I, I finally, I finally saw, I saw an article of The Voice saying these guys are a great rock band, and so I went down to see them, 
And then I met Eric Emerson, who was opening up for them with his band called The Magic Tramps, and I somehow hooked up with him and got close to him, and he, was sort, of my, he sort of mentored me into the rock scene where he got me into Max's and all that stuff. And he wound up living in my apartment with me when Jane Forth threw him out at one point and all this stuff. So I, and I, I played a few shows with Eric over the years back then. Yeah, he was one of the, one of the huge figures at that time who Eric really was, has Eric kind of been was, lost to time. He was, yeah, he was, he was a great, great character. He was in Lonesome Cowboys and Heat, which uh, he has a great part as a mute in the Warhol movie Heat, which is, a, if you have never seen it, it's a great thing. And he, he passed away early. If he had stayed with it, you know, he would have gone on. That, I'm not sure if that is in the library collection here, the film. Well, he you could probably get on DVD. So it's, a, it's a great, great, it's one with Sylvia Miles, I think. Yeah, it's true. It's a great movie. Right. And then there was uh, the band that sort of brought you guys together initially, the Stilettos. Um, Talk about them. The, the, what was the idea behind the stilettos and how they yeah. come together? Oh, uh, I saw Elda at uh, Max's actually. Elda Gentile. Elda Gentile, yeah. And uh, I had I had known her from the Dolls days, and um, you know she said she had. Uh, I you know I was there to see a band. I don't remember which one. And she said that she had a band with Hollywood Lawn. And I said, oh, give me your number, because I really want to come and see the, you know, I want to see it. Hollywood Lawn from Andy Warhol's yeah. family. Yeah, it, yeah. Superstars. Yeah. And um, so I called her, and she said that the band had broken up. And uh, I said, well, let's start another band. And that's what we did. And it had, was it drawing on it was a rock band, girls group? Everything. It grew. It, it grew from... Uh, Elder's love of uh, cabaret and uh, rock and my interest in rock and R&B. And then we had another singer, Roseanne Trapani, who was really very much into soul and R&B and uh, gospel. So, you know, we just all took turns singing our, our favorite kind of music. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, we, we actually got musicians to play with us, and uh, that's how we met Chris. Well, I, I went to, I was the first show I went to, right? That, yeah, that was, yeah. I somehow wound up at the first show of the Stilettos, because the girl I was with knew Elda. So, and then I was, really thought Debbie was fantastic, so I was the first non-transient musician in the Stilettos, because all the musicians were changing all the time. They were all from other bands, and they would just, you know, help us out. And you guys looked absolutely fabulous. I mean, the the pictures from that era. The yeah, we were your rocking, <laughs> rocking platform boots, and yeah. it was... Uh, it, it was fun. It was still glam and sort of yeah. this trashy glam. Yeah, trashy glam. Motif, you know. <laughs> And stilettos ran their course and then evolved um, into Blondie, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, you know, you, you, but there were a few. Is there, there were stuff few in inter the book about the '82 club? Mediary. Is there stuff about the '82 club? Club '82, which yeah. was a was kind of a transvestite yeah, bar. Yeah, because that was a great scene, and it's really overlooked in the New York music history. Lower East Side, right? Yeah, it was on the Lower East Side, and it goes it went way back into some kind of transvestite gangster bar, you know? <laughs> and and, they, and, and the, the people who ran it were all these really butch 
<coughs> women. And Tommy was at the door, you know, she used to wear, have a, you know, grease her haircut and a man's white shirt, and that was it. And, and they had a picture in the back of Abbott Costello with a drag queen. And, and I, I, from a film? I must have no, missed that one. it was from them showing up no, at the club they, sometime. It was, it was all pictures yeah, from inside I, the club. I, I, I wished hell I had stolen it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't, nobody, I mean, nobody knows. Tommy worked for a while at, at La Mama after uh, 82 closed, and uh, I used to go the over 80, and say The 82 club was like a, on 3rd Street off 2nd Avenue in a basement, and it was really thriving scene for maybe like two three years you know and the dolls played there everybody played there and the stilettos played there it was great times. it was a great little nightclub it had a real nightclub vibe it's nice and uh the stilettos fell apart because it was three girls it was time <laughs> <laughs> i guess that could sum it up Debbie, is there anything you wanted to add to that? <laughs> <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, it was three girls, but it was three lead singers. And I don't think you can, any band can handle that. I mean, that's, I mean, that take, for instance, gender. Brian Jones, Chris. Brian Jones? Yes, Brian Jones and Mick Jagger. Yeah, well, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is Beyonce, you know. You think you're Beyonce? Okay. They've, they've buried the hatchet and got back together again. God bless them for sampling a uh, <coughs> song of yours. But uh, Blondie came together. Um, were you, what was the game plan? What was the aesthetic sort of blueprint when you guys put the band together? Was, was there was one? pretty was non, you know. No, it wasn't anything. It was just to have a band. We had a girl lead singer. That was it. Yeah, I mean, we tried a lot of different things. It was very experimental, very, uh, I don't know, we, we tried a lot of different stuff. And, and uh, you know, the only reason that we actually started writing music was because we sort of had to. Yeah, was, you know, yeah well, to keep up. Yeah. But I, I mean, that's why I remember when I, the first time I saw the Ramones, it was, it was like so amazing because they were so defined in what they were doing. You know? Yeah. It was so specific and they had it so... It, whether or not it was planned out on their parts, it was. It, be, it came off like it was super planned out, you know. I think it was planned out, totally. Yeah, they were. It was like the army. I always thought of them as being like the army because everything was so regimented and it, you know, it was just. just do it, you know, they had an idea. Yes. They had the uniform. Stick to the plan. The yeah. plan. Yeah. Song length, but uh, but you guys were a little bit more amorphous and. Uh, and you began playing, I guess, largely at CBGB's and at Max's Kansas City. Were those the two main places you played when you There were other that? little places that came and went. There was a place on 23rd Street. What was that? Mother's or something? Mother's? Mushroom. There Mother's. was this place called Monty Python's that was yeah, on Third Avenue near the taxi driver film set there. Um, there were other places that came and went. Yeah. We played a lot on Long Island at uh, my father's place. Is that the name of that? Right, in Roslyn. That came later. Yeah. But, um, later, yeah. was playing at CBGB's, was there, did you feel like there was a, a unifying aesthetic there? Did you feel like what you were doing was 
fitting in with that, whether you call it punk or something else? I don't know. It, the thing about punk, I think, has sort of, you know, gone through this uh, revolution. I, I don't mean in a, you know, in a revolutionary way, but I mean, it's just evolved and, and gone around. It, it sort of, uh, I mean, the, the name came up from the magazine, Punk is Coming, Punk is Coming. And, um, you know, all of a sudden it became the punk scene. Um, but there were, you know, different types of bands, different kinds of music. And everyone was sort of very accepting of that. It, there was no, you know, it wasn't like a religion where everybody had to play, you know, three chords and, and that was it. And it just. Uh, I think it was probably really, really diverse. It was probably much more diverse down at CBGB's than anybody imagined because there were yeah. all these, there were hundreds of bands that never surfaced, that never, you know, that you never heard of. And they were doing all, it was very eclectic mix of stuff, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you could go from Jane County, suicide, television, us, Ramones, handsome dick Manitoba. And what about like the shirts and all these the shirts, the right. dead boys? I mean, it was a really a lot of variety. And oh, what was the other? I can't remember. It was another one like another pretty face. Another pretty face, yeah, Bobby Prettyman. Yeah. They were playing around, you know. They were kind of like what, like the. The tubes, or something, maybe. I, you know. Yeah, even the tubes. Right. Well, those, yeah, those, those, were, those were San Francisco. Yeah, but they, they were there. Their presence, their were presence was there. You know, I think the wasn't Fee there. They yeah, I think they were sure. I mean, yeah. Just another pretty face reminded me of them. I can't even remember yeah. what the hell they were about, though. Right. Well, was there a sense of community? I mean, did it? Did, you know, it, yeah, sure. from what from what from what I have read and heard, it seemed like there was, but there were also kind of, you know, it got a little schisms. more when, when the record companies showed up and the manager people showed up and all that stuff, and there was suddenly this, you know, financial aspect to the whole thing. It sort of it became a little less communal. But the first couple of years, it was every it was very. I remember going in somehow and using all the Ramones amplifiers for one show when we didn't, I think we might have even used our guitars. I can't remember why we didn't have our own gear there. Oh, we got robbed. Or something, maybe, yeah, maybe that was that, yeah. Yep. Yeah, there was um, a film made by Ivan Kral of the Patti Smith group um, called uh, Blank Generation, I believe, and there's a, a scene in it, you can find it on YouTube, and it's of a New Year's Eve party at uh, CBGB's, uh, I think, 75 to 76. Um, there's no audio, but uh, it, you know, it seems like everybody was there. You were there, Debbie was a tiara, and Chris, you were rocking some new wave threads, and Delaney Kay was there, and um, the, the moments were, I mean, it just seemed like one big happy family. And it made me wonder, gosh, was this What were they on? Really a big <laughs> one big happy family? <laughs> that that was not depicted, it seemed. That uh, that was left on the editing. We had a fabulous New Year's Eve once it and the they opened up the uh, Fillmore East one uh, New Year's and it, it was a pile of wet moldy, you know, old seats and stuff and um, maybe even some of the seats were gone, but the, the smell of mildew was so overpowering, I almost passed out. But it was Ike and Tina Turner. 
that's right. Is yeah. that on New Year's? I don't remember the Yeah, that was that. a New Year's, New Year's show. show. Yeah. yeah, I think it, John Holstrom, who went, who did Punk Magazine later, I think he was working the light show was he? for them, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It, uh, there's a sense, I think, and I guess you guys are bearing this out, that the 70s music scene sort of started as a break from the 60s, that like the 60s needed to be kicked to the curb, ground into the pavement, and this new thing had to start. But it well, seemed it, it, that there was a lot of sort of overlap, and that there was a, of course, yeah, a lot of drawing from. It's always a layering process, always. Yeah. You know, no, lately I've just been saying that the the 70s are kind of eclipsing the 60s because. The 60s maybe have just been kind of wrung dry, you know, for material. Maybe everybody's moved on. But And there was something about the city being so blighted and wrecked that, you know, adds to the romance of the yeah, period. The you know, poverty. But also to the freedom and the deconstructivist mentality behind all the music, everybody breaking things down and putting it back together again. You know, the hip-hop stuff is the same thing. It's about yeah. deconstructivism, you know, move changing forms and pulling old styles apart and putting them back together again, you know, physically with the records, all that stuff. So it's all it's all hooked up there. But yeah, everybody got along great those I'd say the first three years at CBGB's. Then you know it it did kind of falter towards the end when everybody started getting record deals. Yeah. I mean it seemed like there was were were there were there camps, were there were there crews that you were tighter with? It seemed like the Ramones and you Yeah, guys, it was very close to the Ramones. There was then there was a television Terry Ork, Patty Smith clique. And there were all these different groups, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like to be more like the the high art rockers versus the pop yeah. rockers. Is that is that that's accurate? a fair assessment. Yeah, we assessment. Was, we were closer to like the Dead Boys and the Ramones and those guys. Okay. God knows why. But television was great, you know. <laughs> Te television was television was probably really the they were the first ones out there with the rip rip clothing and the short hairdos, you know. We were all still sporting long hair at the time, you know. Well, Blondie, uh, part you know, part of the band's presentation, I mean, the fashion element, I mean, and just being sexy as hell. Um, that was something that seemed kind of unique to the scene at CB's, I mean, in terms of um, how was that conceived in terms of, you know, Debbie or Chris, in terms of uh, really how you guys the, presented visually? We like the British fashions a lot, you know, we really like the mod fashions that, with, with skinny lapels and ties and stuff. That yeah. That was part of the male sensibility. Yeah, sort of, you know, to, to sort of back away from the wide lapels and the big leg pants and just, you know, to really do the opposite. Yeah, because you remember in the 70s, everyone had fucking collars. Come on, you've got one. <laughs> you know I've got one. <laughs> but a lot of the whole CBGB thing was a backlash against, you know, the music that was going on at the time, too. You know, the, you know Linda Ronstadt and all this stuff. It was very M.O.R. I don't even know if people still use the term M.O.R., you know, which means middle, middle of, the, of road. the road, you know. Uh, that was what was going on in mainstream music, you know. I mean, you know, I like, I've learned to really like Fleetwood Mac and all that stuff, but, it, you know, I remember at the time it being, it seemed a little tame for me. You know? 
Right, but in, in terms of packaging the band and presenting yourselves, I mean, television and Patti Smith presented themselves um, kind of more down and dirty. You guys were a little bit more elegant. Well, um, we got, uh, you know, we got signed. We did a lot of little sort of independent things, and then uh, we got picked up and, um, you know, sort of by an English label, actually. So that uh, we became, you know, whatever we are, Brits, yeah. Brit freaks. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of evolved that way. Blondie has a heavy British identity, you know, so. Which was the other, the other big schism in punk besides the aesthetic schism of the CBGB's bands. Yeah. Then there was the New York versus London, yeah. the UK. Yeah. And how, so you were well received yeah, by so, yeah, we British, went over, on the British punk scene? We went scene? over for the first time with television. And they had been very much anticipated over there. And somehow, I don't know, I mean, the, fresh, the British media, the press, the rock press there was crazy fickle and controlling and it was a whole different thing. There's no, there was no weekly national music periodical in America ever. I don't think, I don't think there is maybe now, you know, and then, and those things, you know, the enemy and, and Melody Maker set the standards for what was hip. Yeah, the tabloid newspapers devoted specifically to music in a very small country that came out every week. So, so we went over with television, and in a nutshell, the press dumped on television and heroized us, you know, and said we were great. So, and that's what happened. That was a, that, that tour seemed a little troubled from the band relationship standpoint. Yeah, I mean, that was after the Bowie Iggy tour, right? I guess. Oh, I don't know. Was that after that? I think it was. You know. Was it? Yeah. I mean, the, the first the first big tour we did was with Iggy on the Idiot Tour, where David Bowie was actually up on stage sure? with him. I think that was, a, yeah, that was earlier, right? Did we have our chronology? England was before? That? Yeah, and I remember, because those guys treated us so great, and I remember it thinking, you know, these guys are fucked up, and we went over television. <laughs> <laughs> because it, they, Bowie and Iggy were super gracious to us, you know? It was a terrific experience. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and um, any, I don't know. I don't know why the hell we struck a chord over there. You know, they loved Debbie. They loved the image of the brash American girl, you know, I guess, too. And, uh, you know, it just always has struck a chord, and they've always been very loyal to us. The British fans have, you know, maintained their connection over the years. Well, they have a long history of, uh, you know, girl pop singers. A long, long history. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think that that was the way back in, in New York or in the States at the time. You know, it was limited, very limited. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the big female icons here were, you know, a Janice and whatever. It was a different thing. Right, Dusty Springfield. Yeah. 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 Clark, the other, yeah, and the other big rift at that time, this also between New York music scenes, yeah. was disco. Um, and. Punk Magazine, in fact, launched its first issue with uh, an editorial piece um, basically announcing that disco sucks, and that was sort of the, the aesthetic standpoint of punk rock. And yet, you guys seem to, were you disco fans? Did you go I out to clubs? I always liked disco music. Disco music came out of R&B, 
and you know it was great. You know there there was you know yes it was culturally kind of for the masses, and there was some really dumb disco music, but there was also really dumb punk music too. Uh, you know I, I don't know. You know I I never had any. We, but we, you know, the main thing was we never really called ourselves a punk band. We really said we were a pop band, even at the time when people asked us what was going on. But they, nobody wanted to, everybody wanted to use the punk label as frequently as they could. Right, so did you guys go to, did you go to Studio 54? Were there discotheques that you frequented just Sure. because you liked yeah, them? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was at, she may have gone more, I was at Studio 54, you know, I don't know, what, seven times altogether. They threw a big party for Debbie when she was on the cover of Interview Magazine there. And Andy threw a big party, and Truman was there, and all that stuff. That was a great event, things like that. But, you know, you know I wasn't here with any regularity. I never went in the basement or any of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't regulars there at all. But you, um, you put out a single that was one of the biggest singles of the era, Heart of Glass, which was a, which was a straight up disco song, and it was hugely successful. We thought it was like Kraftwerk. <laughs> which was kind of disco too. I mean, it, it just, it, it, did that feel transgressive? Like, did you, did, were you saying, wow, no, because the, we had the punks are going to be pissed at us because we're putting, we're making a disco song with that. No, I don't, it never occurred to us. I know, I, I think that, uh, we were, had always been an experimental, um, you know, we always had the experimental edge, you know, for ourselves to discover, you know, what we liked the, the most or, and what we were good at, you know. I mean, that was, we were sort of yeah, the, learning. The Parallel Lines record was on the charts for six months before they figured out to put that song out, too. So, I mean, nobody really saw that coming, yeah. including certainly the least of all the record company. As sometimes is the case. As, yeah, well, that's something else. But, and also at the time, in a scene that nobody really knew about um, at all until 1979 outside of the circuit of clubs in the Bronx and in Harlem and the park parties and certain areas around the city. The, the hip hop scene that had been bubbling up finally started getting records out in late 79. Um, and you guys connected. Well, Freddie took us to Fast this. Five Freddy. Freddie took us to this event in Uptown in 77. And it was just super exciting. It was so exciting. You know? How did that, how did that come, up, come about? How did you meet Fab Five Freddy? And Freddy we met from hanging around. And I don't know, was TV party going on then? And I probably hadn't started up by then. I don't know where the hell we saw Freddy. We kept seeing Samo on the wall, you know? Yeah. Samo's signature and the tag. And, the tag and um, I don't know. All of a sudden, Freddy showed up. He came downtown. Yeah, I he was can't like, remember you know, the first time we met him, really. I'll, I'll ask him. I don't know if he knows. <coughs> a few <laughs> nights ago, there was a screening of great, uh, great graffiti history film here. Yeah. Um, that, uh, well, that's the first, Wild Style is the first hip-hop film. It really is. And, and I, I told this guy, as soon as this comes out, it's going to be grabbed, the whole thing is going to be co-opted by Hollywood, and it was immediately followed by this thing called Beat Street, which was a terrible Hollywood watered-down version of Wild Style. 
Right, more of a, more of a narrative driven than a than a documentary, but um, dumb movie. <laughs> <laughs> but the the intersection of those of of those scenes was accelerated, I think, a little bit through a single that you guys did, in that came out. Rapture came out in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. So about a year after the very first hip-hop records dropped, um, Rapper's Delight and, and what have you, you guys put Rapture together. And what was the, uh, what was the process of doing that, of, of having, having a sort of rap flavor on that song? I mean, that song is now is, is sort of like a, you know, a, a, yeah, a so cornerstone of hip-hop culture, really. Yeah, the, the, guy, the guys from Wu-Tang Clan told us that it was the first rap song some of them had heard. So that's a little mind-boggling. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was the first hit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it was all just sort of merging together for us, you know. And the, um, I wonder we meet Niall and, and Bernard. Right. Yeah. Went, well, Sheik was all happening. I mean... It was just so, everything was sort of happening at once, you know, and, and you can't really separate it because they were, you know, like the scratchers were taking all, lifting all these lines from all of these, you know, great songs and great bands and there was all of that, you know, stuff going on and, um, I don't know, it was, just seemed like it was a part of our world, that's all. Yeah, we love Chic, you know, I mean, I don't know what Chic would qualify as disco music, but those guys were... You know, I was always enamored of that stuff, and we were really lucky we got to work with those guys. They were like right jazz, on, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the first and last argument in anybody who says that disco music sucks. It's yeah, just well, like, yeah. you know, listen, to, listen to the first sheet record. pop music now could be qualified as disco music. I mean, really, everything now is dance music. Yeah. Well, this is this is the great irony of the schism between punk rock and disco, is that if anything is defined cutting-edge New York music for the last 10 years. It's been rock and dance music and hip-hop all kind of mashing together um, in various corners of, uh, of the five boroughs. So it's, it, it is a little bit ironic that these scenes sort of started out with schisms, which you guys really, went a ways to erase. It was just a cultural thing. I really think it was because it was, you know, everybody... It, everybody in New York wasn't a hipster in 1977, the way they are. <laughs> so you, had, you know, you had all those people going to those... It wasn't an identifiable de demographic that people yeah, really yeah, wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you had all those people going to discos, and I think it was much more of a cultural phenomenon, the, the anti-disco movement. It was more about that than the, actually had to do with the music, certainly. Well, you know, I'm super excited that one of the things Chris brought along today was a, a small digital portfolio of some of his photographic work from the 70s. Um, that was always part of your creative life as well. Yeah, you? I was always running around with a camera, yes. And uh, it, it was always been a big conflict for me, like when I would go to an event, whether I would have a camera or enjoy myself, because if I had the camera, then I would be focusing on trying to take pictures and sort of lose sight of where I was sometimes. So. Bob. There's, 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 there's at least one great, other great photographer in the room right now. Bob Gruen. But he's, he never had that conflict at all. He's always got the glued to the thing, you know. 
Well, should we, uh, should we take a look at some of these pictures and uh, maybe you guys can comment on some of the scenes? And she's got hotel room keys pinned to her jacket. And sometime around that period, they got, you know, I don't know, they got arrested or something for stealing hotel room keys. <laughs> Debbie, do you remember this, uh, this scene? You're uh, clearly smoking a cigarette back there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Surprise! Did you guys tour with the Runaways then? No, we, no, saw, we, we went to see them, them, like at the Ratskeller maybe. Was that the is that the downstairs club in Boston? Yeah. 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 I think it was. Yeah, I remember it was downstairs. It was probably there. I know. We also went to see them at, at my father's place. Yeah. And what were they like back in the day? They were great. They were great. They were great. You know, they, they were. They were much maligned because of their femininity. I saw, I recently saw an old issue of Crawdaddy, and the whole review is this sexist slam about, and it's all because they're young girls, you know? The whole slant of the thing was, was how, you know, awful they were uh, flaunting their sexuality and all this stuff, which is so tame by today's standards. Debbie got the same flack, you know, even from the great Lester Bangs was really pissed off that she was showing her underwear here and there, you know? So what can you do? Andy Warhol. That's Andy. They have the same hairdo. Uh. <laughs> bad hair, bad hair. Yeah, and Andy's, Andy's said in the diary somewhere that, you know, if he had plastic surgery, he'd want to look like Debbie. <laughs> and this is, he was shooting her for her portrait one of which, the violet one just sold for fucking six million pounds at Sotheby's, you know. And was, it, was this for, uh, was this an album cover? No, so, no, no this I, was just I, the, just a, just the portrait. Yeah. that famous portrait. Yeah, we've never seen now, the, the thing is now is that I should write a screenplay that I really am Andy. <laughs> and that we had the surgery, you know. <laughs> Andy, Andy used to shoot with a big shot camera. A Polaroid big shot camera was a camera that is... It's like a shoebox. With the bellows. It's a box. You focus it by moving it forwards and back. There's no, you know. And, and we used to buy them for him for like 20 bucks in a giant junk store. So it was always ironic to me, even then, that he was using these cheap-ass cameras to, you know, and <laughs> selling the portraits oh. for God knows what. You know? Yeah. All of those Warhol portraits, right? Shot with a shoebox. They're selling the Polaroids. The big, the big auction now. They're selling some of the Polaroids for you know whatever you know. Yeah. Next shot. <laughs> a band from the great Midwest, Devo. Now, Set this one up for us. <laughs> and this is one of my my favorite bands ever, Devo. And we uh, recently toured with them for the first time. I guess it was, what, last last fall? For the first yeah. time? Yeah. Wow. We never toured with them. And uh, they're fantastic. They're amazing. They still are. It's taking out the trash. Yeah. <laughs> is this a rooftop somewhere? This yeah. is on 17th Street in our old apartment. <clears throat> okay. I have some other great shots of them from this, these sessions. I, I wind up taking a whole bunch of pictures of them over the years. Yeah, their their career kind of got started when they came and played that show, played a series of shows at uh, Max's. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to see them. Anya dragged us to see them. I remember it. they were great. They were very exciting. They're still great. They tour. Mother's Bow just keeps going. Oh, I have a real job and I can't go out with you guys. They're all complaining that. Mark Mothersbaugh from yeah. the band, one of the preeminent pre film composers. Yeah, so that's what he's referring time. to, yeah. Next shot. And that's the famous wow. Vulture. That's punk rock. Yeah. What's, uh, do you, what do you remember about that shot, Deb? Uh, well, I remember, you know, finding all the dolls in the street and, um, the vulture shirt was, wasn't that Joey's or something? Yeah, it's from Joey and Howie, yeah, our friends. I Joey mean, I'm wearing, I'm wearing Ramon? handsome no. Dick Manitoba's belt. <coughs> I'm wearing uh, Benton, our landlord's uh, leather bikini bottoms. <laughs> Joey's shirt, and uh, yeah, those no, are my not, shoes. Not Joey Ramon shirts, it's another <laughs> Joey. The vulture shirt, we, we, I always, I wish I knew what the hell the, the you know, the genesis of the Vulture shirt was, because, but we never figured it out. We thought maybe it was a softball team. I know it came from Brooklyn, and we've reproduced it over the years, but yeah. I don't really know what the heck it really was. And you got Dick Mantoba's belt, belt yeah. from... I stole it. You stole it. We, we're, we shared a rehearsal space with them, and they left it there one time. And we he took insisted it. on having it back. Yeah, I remember there was a big conflict over the belt. <laughs> And this was shot for Punk Magazine for the centerfold. Debbie was the first fold out in Punk Magazine. And that's Debbie and His Holiness at the, uh, and on the tour. This is, you know, backstage on the Iggy tour. And, oh, it was great. It was a great moment. I mean, we, Look we, at you guys. Yeah. So beyond, look how young he looks, you know. You know, you know those pictures, you ever see the pictures of him in his underwear on stage? The story of that is that he lost all his clothes during the course of the tour, and that, and that was what he was left with his underwear, <laughs> with his underwear you know? And, you know, this was, this was an amazing thing. Bowie was in the background playing keyboards and singing backups for Iggy, and it was just, it was a great thing. Yeah, another, another out-of-towner who really is one of the architects of punk rock, who lived in New York for a bit of time, but really made his name and made, made the sound in Detroit. But, uh, but you guys toured England? No, the States. We did the States. The States. There was, there was, we were in, in Seattle, and after one of the shows, we went to the local punk house, which was, you know, the house where all the punk kids hung out in Seattle. And we did an impromptu little set there with some of the guys from Blondie and Iggy standing on a, on a mattress on a board. A board on a mattress was the stage. And since then, every time you go back, somebody comes over and goes, I was at that thing. You know? <laughs> Next shot. There's, there's a story about this car. I know, I'm, that's not Debbie's car. This was in front of CBGB's. That, the, you mean Debbie's wreck car, Camaro? No, that's a T-Bird. This was in front of CBGB's. Uh. I don't know if we know whose car that was. Yeah, the car was always there. We never knew whose it was. <laughs> but it, well, it was pretty it was, nice with white walls and spoke yeah. rims. That's it was obviously a, that's somebody a bitch and ride. Came, do you know whose car that was? No, nobody knows. <laughs> 
but that's right in front of the thing one summer night. Everybody used to hang out in front of CBGB's on summer nights. It was very idyllic, you know, it was nice. <laughs> Next shot? Yeah, that's from the same session that we were up on the roof with. This is more formal. Yeah, sort of, sort of a mental hospital sort of vibe yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, this is one of my favorite pictures of mine, actually. Yeah, Where do they get those suits from? They, they were hazmat suits, and they only, now they, have, they throw them away after each show. At the time, they, were, they really smelled bad. Because <laughs> they, were, they, were, they would get really sweaty, and they, that was it. They were stuck with this one yellow suit each. <laughs> Next. And this is us with Gary, who only is on the first album, you know, and everybody... everybody Gary Valentine. Yeah, I mean, he's got a sort of, uh, what's his name, you know, not the hoople thing going. <laughs> I was always worried, I used to do an Alice Cooper thing. Clem, Clem, Clem will not cop to have been a big Grateful Dead fan, but I am told that he, that he was a big deadhead back in the day. It will go no further yeah. in this room. And Debbie, that t-shirt looks kind of iconic. What, the wheel? Yeah. yeah. Who knows what that is? I don't think it was for a supermarket or something, wasn't it? I don't know. A&P. A&P, yeah. Is that an A&P Wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take, is this your Yeah, I just put the thing on a timer and okay. went in front of it, yeah. All right, next. Oh, and that, speaking of the runaways, this is Kim Fowley. This is in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Alley yeah. fans. Yeah, he's well, he's awesome. You know, they're coming to take me away. Uh -huh. I don't, I don't know why. That, if you go to YouTube, there are so many kids doing. They're coming to take me away. It's there's hundreds. Was that his song? Yeah, yeah. There's hundreds of versions. <laughs> and, and he was he was both an artist, but he was also a manager. Did he? Well, manage? he, he invented the Runaways. That's what the Queens of Noise was. Their album. Was the, he was the Malcolm McLaren of the Runaways, huh? so to speak. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It was before Malcolm, and he's 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 still around. They still he's still got an internet presence. Yeah. Yes, he uh, he wanted us to I don't know to change our name or to do a song called the uh, uh, Rabbit Skunks of Hollywood. Rabbit Skunks. I'm throwing it out in case anybody wants to use it. <laughs> Band Kim Valley, Rabbit Skunks of Hollywood. <laughs> Right, next shot. And this is oh boy, an outtake outtake from Mutant Monster Beach Party. Uh, Lester Bangs on the beach, and the two girls are locals, and these guys are, are you know denizens of the beach there. <laughs> well, so so tell me, outtakes from a movie? No, from the Fumetti. You know, from the Mutant Monster Beach Party was the punk magazine. You know what Fumetti is, guys? It's a it's a it was a Comic, comic book with photos with balloons. With, it was a style that started in South America and Europe in the 60s. They, you know, they used to be like soap operas. And Holstrom picked up on it and ran with in it. In Punk Magazine. Punk Magazine, yeah. They, they did The Legend of Nick Detroit, uh, Mutant Monster Beach Party, I think one other, I can't remember. And that was, so we all went and would shoot these things, and then Holstrom would do the artwork on them. And, do the captions, but this was us just hanging out. 
Right, and, and Lester Bangs, Lester for, Bangs for folks who are not familiar with his work, uh, a music writer of, uh, who's held in very high regard, no longer yeah. with us. Um, but he was, a, he was a huge Blondie fan. He was a fan and critic, though. He wrote a whole book, again, slamming Debbie for her overt sexuality. What you was know. your take on that, Debbie? I mean, and this book is like, this book is like I a I could have done book. so much more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, as, I, as I repeatedly say, I wish he had stayed with us long enough to have Britney Spears rubbed in his face. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> but that book is, uh, that the, the Lester Bangs Blondie book, incredibly rare. Like yeah, well, he was, he was he, we were doing our own book at the time, and he was kind of pissed off that we wouldn't interview with him extensively for his books, and I think it, he sort of flip-flopped it after a while. He was annoyed. But he was a character. And I, I, do, I remember him try, <coughs> trying to do a band. Remember all that? Yeah, he, he put a band together, and he started doing shows, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was the first show, but afterwards he said, oh, I didn't realize it was this hard. <laughs> <laughs> Says the critic. Yeah. That's such a great shot. Well, that's Eric Emerson. That's the guy we were talking about. Eric Emerson on the right? Yeah, on the right. And that's Sesu Coleman, who also is still, still around with an internet presence. But Eric was, you know, physically gorgeous character. And uh, just was great all around character. He was more than just a musician, he was just an all around maniac. Wow, and this was uh, the, the context of this This was shot. from Magic Tramps. They were total, full-on glitter, glam thing, you know. But the music was kind of punkish. They had a violin player in there also. They used to do the William Tell Overture as their final song. They did a rock version of the William Tell Overture, which was really kind of great. I, I don't even know if there's any recordings beyond a couple of tapes of these guys. They never got into a studio, I don't think. Yeah, they were um, they were a, a presence at the Mercer Arts Center. In fact, legend has it that they were there the day the Mercer Arts Center it literally collapsed. collapsed. Yeah, literally, yeah, you know, they, they, um, they, Larry, the violin player, told me they ran out holding their instruments on their head. The Mercer Arts Center was connected to the Broadway Central Hotel, which was a, a derelict down-and-out hotel on Broadway. It used to be an incredibly elegant Fancy, yeah. place. But it became the thing last for century. transients, shall we say. And it, uh, it collapsed. Somebody once told me if you go into an apartment and throw up in the same place on the floor over and over again, it will eventually eat away. <laughs> that gastric acid, very effective. That could have been the cause, you know. Yeah, yeah that was... That was back, uh, Mercer Arts Center was where the Kitchen Center, which is now over in Chelsea, started out. And, but after it collapsed, they had to find another home. But next shot. There's real early Ramones. And Tommy, you know, Tommy, I knew from Mercer Arts Center. He had a band called Butch. And he, at one point, I remember he approached me and said, Wait, I heard you guys are playing downtown at this bar, same old thing. You know, we'd like to play there. I, I thought they were a Latin band with the name. <laughs> but yeah, they were great. You know, all those guys are sorely missed. You know, Joey was such a great person all around. He was such a sweet guy. Oh, you know, it was terrific. And they had all 
they all they also had huge conflicts. I mean, you guys know the stories, you know. But there was a period of about five six months where I was the only one that had Johnny's phone number. I, I somehow got myself into this, you know, intermediate position. So they would all call me as I called Johnny and tell him. <laughs> And Tommy is Tommy's living upstate. Uh, he put out a he's playing mandolin these days. Yeah, yeah. He, Uncle he Monk. Put out like he has this band called record. Uncle Monk with his long, long, long time girlfriend, and that's what they do. Also, very punk rock. Yeah. Next shot. This is. This is as punk as it gets. <coughs> yeah, it's very noir. This is one of my another one of my favorite shots of mine. This is Richard Hell with his last show with the Heartbreakers at Max's, upstairs at Max's. Wow. And that's Walter Lure's hand. I was wondering whose hand that was. And Richard was depressed leaving the Heartbreakers. Regardless, I don't know, you know, I don't know the, really the inside story on it, but that was the last gig they did. There was a, there was a rumor that you uh, had rehearsed with the Heartbreakers I, well, at yeah, one point. Yeah, I played with them once to see what they were doing when they were starting up, and then they, you know, they go, Walter. Probably worked out for the best. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm happy to have stuck with it. But right. Richard's, you know, great. Right, and his, I, yeah, his, I, I had mentioned his, he's got a new Yeah, I got to read the book. Out, I'm really is, curious to see. I heard the, we just did the radio show, and the guy said his Christmas list is definitely going to be shorter this year, because apparently he zapped a lot of people in the book, but I don't know. <laughs> Next shot. And that's the Screamers in L.A., and the, the funny thing is, to, Tomato goes way back to the CB's scene. He used to be in this uh, sort of drag ensemble, which used to perform at CBGB's. And I just had a long connection with him and Tommy Gear, and they were in a, they had a sort of suicide-ish band called the Screamers out of Los Angeles. Then, did you guys um, have a have a base of operation in Los Angeles? I mean, in terms of the no, not the really. Scene there, or? yeah, we used to just go there, you know, sort of frequently. The, the first time we went there was like. The, I mean, overnight, we, we went to the Whiskey, and they were having a record party for the Hollywood Stars. And the Hollywood Stars was a band who had this sort of Aerosmith scarves and glam rock and bell bottoms and this stuff. And like overnight, then we did our show, and like the next night, everybody was wearing the little ties and the, and the skinny jeans and all that stuff. It just went, it was kind of the swan song of the Hollywood glam thing until the hair bands yes. later on. Next shot. Oh, that's, that's Steve Bader is in Paris. This is like two weeks before he, he passed on uh, on the roof in Paris. That's nice. I, I can't remember wow. what shots I had given these guys. What a beautiful shot. Yeah. He was a good guy, sweetheart. Yeah, actually, if uh, people who were here last night for the program, um, the movie Punking Out, um, the Dead Boys figured prominently. The Dead Boys were great. Another one of the bands from the scene who, were, yeah, they, 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 they made they made some noise, but they, uh, they, they didn't, uh, they didn't have as high a profile as a lot of other, a lot of other folks. Is that uh, the last shot? I think it is. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.